The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 15. Uh, we're going to continue this week in our series called Up Close and Personal. Um, and we've been calling this a 10-week series. However, uh, we pray often here at Love City that God would have his way. And we pray that if God, if our plan doesn't line up uh, with his plan, that he would change it. We leave room for God by his Holy Spirit to come and make adjustments to what it is we're doing or we're thinking. Uh, and that happened this week as I studied for this sermon. Our intention uh, when we started this series and originally reviewing it and trying to plan it out we looked at taking the five chapters of 1 John and cutting those in half, so that equals 10 weeks. Five times two is 10. Those of you that already had that, you're uh, probably a mathlete, and so I congratulate you. Um, however, in looking at verses 15 through 29, that was 14 verses, uh, attempting to condense what is contained therein uh, into anything close to a sermon that, that wouldn't cause you to starve to death was not going to happen. So uh, it would have taken every bit probably of, of two to three hours to unpack what verses uh, 15 through 29 have to say with any kind of, uh, doing any kind of decent, you know, expositional job. And so, you know, if any church in Cincinnati could hold out for a two-hour sermon, I'd say it'd be you guys. You guys got good endurance. You love the word. And uh, that's part of why I like being a part of this church. However, uh, I didn't want to get, you know, tomatoes thrown at me. Because you hit an hour and 30 minutes, people they get, start to get a little cranky. And uh, our services are in the evening, so we want to be considerate, people with kids, things of that nature. So the bottom line is we were going to do 14 verses tonight. You want to play high-low? How many verses are we doing? We're going to get three done, okay? Because there was so much in 15 to 17 uh, that it's going to take us every bit of 45 minutes to an hour uh, to unpack it. And we won't totally... Uh, say everything, obviously, that could be said about it, even in that time frame. So we're going to read verses 15 through 17, and uh, then we're gonna, we'll come back through and, and chew on it and see what the Lord will say to us, okay? Starting in uh, verse 15, this is 1 John chapter 2. Ready? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let's jump back to verse 15. So it says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. The first thing I want to say is that this does not run contrary to scriptures like uh, John 3.16, that tells us that God loves the whole world, right? And his response to that was to send Jesus to live a perfect, sinless life, and then die in our place for our sins as our substitute. So God loves the world, clearly. Uh, Or scriptures like at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples right before he ascends into heaven, and he tells them to go into all the world. He says, go into every nation and share with them this beautiful gospel, making disciples of all nations. Uh, Jesus sends them to do the most loving thing that we are capable of as humans, which is to share the gospel with someone. 
There's a lot of loving things you can do. There's a lot of great uh, acts of kindness that, that could be uh, given from one person to another. The most loving thing anyone can do, no matter how offensive it may be to that person, is to share with them the truth of the gospel. Amen? You happy about that? I'm happy about it. You believe that? I do too. Uh, the word world here, do you get that? The word world uh, it does not represent the globe, and it does not necessarily represent all of humanity. Really, this is, this is more of a reference to what sometimes is referred to as worldliness or the anti-God sentiment and over-attachment to the trappings of this life and the things that often ensnare those that do not know the truth. So this is not telling us to not do what God does. It's not saying don't love the people of the world. Um, and it's not even telling you, you know, don't love the world as far as the, the globe that we live on. You know, I think you should recycle, be a good steward uh, of, of the, the earth that God has given us. So uh, really this is talking about the kind of the, the attitude or anti-God sentiment that can tend to be of those that identify more with the world than with eternal things. Okay? Now, some throughout the history of the church, uh, and, and I would say there are those even still today that what they've believed is if you really love God more than the world, that you will seclude yourself from it completely. Uh, think of monks or nuns who live in a monastery up in the mountains or out away somewhere from all of culture. That is a response sometimes to this verse. To do not love the world, have nothing to do with the world. And so that's the way they interpret that is that means seclude yourself completely from contact with the world. Uh, and, and so they, they remove themselves altogether from culture. Uh, and they're doing that because they don't want to be stained by the worldliness of the culture that they would otherwise be in. And um, if I'm being honest with you, I have to admit that this is a tempting proposal for me at times. Uh, sometimes the world around us seems so dark and hostile towards God and towards God's people uh, and towards his word that it sounds like a good idea to get together with some Christians, you know, buy some land, buy some seeds, buy a couple farm animals and just get away from it all. Some of you are smiling, some of you are freaked out because um, you've you know, never been outside of the city. It's cool out there. The air's lighter. There's, there's animals not on leashes. It's neat. You should go. Uh, you know, it, there's, there are other good things about it. We can make overalls for all the guys, which would be cool, so we'd match, and, and plain cotton dresses for the girls. That'd be cool. We could churn our own butter. Most of you have not had that experience. I've heard it's quite fun. Uh, and we could just sing songs to Jesus all day as we live the simple life. I mean, really, I think about it sometimes. Sometimes I think, man, to, to be Amish, it, there'd be hard parts, but there'd be, there'd be cool parts. And, and part of this is because I'm weird and, uh, you know, have a, a thick streak of hillbilly running through me. So that's why it's probably more appealing to me than most of you. However, uh, just being honest, I could probably go that way if, if I didn't know what I'm about to say next. The reality is this is not what God has commanded of us um, it's clear from Jesus' prayer in John 17 that his desire for us is to be in the world, just not of the world. And so the answer, if you look at what Jesus petitions the Father in what is called the high priestly prayer, we're seeing one of the, the last prayers that is recorded of what Jesus said before he goes to be crucified. And so what's on his mind toward the end of his earthly life and ministry, one of the things he's talking to the Father about is that he doesn't want God the Father to take us up out of the world, but he wants to anoint us for the task of being in the world uh, as, his, as his light. And so, um, 
If, if we overcorrect and withdraw from the culture around us, the question is then, who will be salt and light in a bland and dark world? If all of us decided to do the overalls and the seeds and get some land and uh, you know, go that way, then who is left then? To preach the beauty of the gospel. And, and I understand that sometimes the, the darker it seems out there, the more anti-God it seems the sentiment is in the culture around us, the more tempting doing some type of commune situation may seem. But what, what we have to realize is the darker it gets out there, the brighter our light must shine. It only intensifies the call of our mission. Um, and, and so remember I said this. If I try to get you to go in with me on a farm, you know, 200 miles from here. Okay? You can remind me of this sermon. Uh, however, one thing we also have to think about, we must also be careful to not live in our homes like everyone else and work our jobs and go to school like everyone else, but be as useless and reclusive as we would be on our own special Christian happy place farm. Right? Because you can do that. You could, you could be in the world and really blend in and become of the world and be really as, as you'd be as little salt and light as you would be if you just ran. None of you laughed at Christian Happy Place Farm. I like that. I think that's what I'd call it. I'd put a sign out at the front of the lane, Christian Happy Place Farm. That way people coming by knew if they wanted to come in, they could have their own pair of overalls or cotton dress and join us. We'd put them on butter churning duty first because I don't think that's very fun, to be honest. I was trying to sell it to you as if it is, but you're probably smarter than that. So we'll move on. Uh, it is much easier said than done to live in and amongst this culture without conforming to it. Can we be honest? I, I can say that this is the call. Romans 12.2 tells us that you know, we, we can't be conformed to this world. Um, but it's easier to say that than to do it. How is it possible? How is it possible to do that? Um, and the answer to that question is also found in Jesus' prayer. Because in the middle of asking God the Father to help us be in but not of this world... Jesus makes this request of the Father. So he's praying, he's praying for us, and here's what he asks God to do on our behalf. He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. The answer to how do you live in this world and not be of this world, the answer is the one we probably all saw coming. It's the word. It's the word. God's perfect word is the truth, and that guards us from being deceived by all that this world would offer us. Because our enemy always works through deception. It's the only way, it's the only weapon he has. And so, as the Christian's mind and heart is filled with the truth of the scripture, there are less points of vulnerability. The more truth you have in your heart from the scriptures, the less angles your enemy can take to try to convince you that something else is true. Does that make sense? That's why we talk about reading the Bible so much and not just reading it in a dutiful, there, I pounded out a chapter before I went to bed. I just spit a little. I'm not even that excited. That's kind of foreboding about how this is going to go. Um, probably going to get exciting. I'm already spitting. Um, not in a, a dutiful, there, I, you know, I, I pounded out a chapter, now it's time to fall asleep, or I did so in the middle of that, but in a, in a, like the way you wake up and you can, you know, someone has started breakfast in the house, you know what I'm talking about, and you can smell it and that's what woke you up. Just pay, whatever your favorite breakfast is, you know that smell. And anytime I mention food, I know I, I risk losing you for the rest of the time. I'm going to use an analogy, but I need you to come back, okay? I'm giving you permission to imagine your favorite breakfast for a second. You wake up, you smell it. Somebody has done it. 
They've already got the French toast on the griddle. The, the eggs are already in the pan, whatever it is. What starts to happen, man? You start to salivate. Excitement begins. It's much easier to get up out of bed that day than it is most days. And I'm not commenting about what time of day you read the word, but we should go towards it with that same level of excitement, knowing that in there are the weapons and the truth that's going to help us and equip us to not be deceived, to not be defeated, but to live victorious and to live as salt and light in this world, to be a blessing, to have something to give, to pour out, instead of, instead of walking around empty looking to be poured into. Amen? Do you like breakfast analogies? I can do more. How was that? Good? All right, we'll visit breakfast again. I could tell you like that. All right, everyone likes breakfast. Um, so here's the thing. It, it, it's like this. I'm going to give you an example about in the world but not of the world, okay? How many of you have had the distinguished honor in your lifetime, can't believe I'm going to do this, of plunging a toilet? If you're not raising your hand, it's probably because you don't want to admit to what causes the need for that. Um, and, and you're probably being untrue. Un, un, you're probably being dishonest right now, and that's okay. We'll forgive you. I realize it can be embarrassing. However, most of us have had the opportunity, we've at least seen a YouTube video of someone plunging a toilet. Um, and here's the thing. Normally, normally when the toilet is clogged, there, there are dirty and unpleasant things in the water. Yes, I'm not going to get any more descriptive than that. And so here's the thing. That plunger, it has to go down into that dirty mess, and it has to create a seal around the trapway. And then you know how it works. You force water, bursts of water a little bit at a time, and it, it clears the clog. That's the job of a plunger. What a wonderful thing to be. Uh, and once that mission is accomplished of unclogging the, the, the toilet, uh, there's normally a new and disgusting problem. We fixed that problem, but now we have another one. The plunger is now covered in the nastiness it had to go through to accomplish the mission of unclogging the toilet. And if you have, in fact, plunged a toilet in your life, you've experienced this. Now what do I do, right? Toilet's clear, but I have a dirty plunger in my hand. I could go to the bathtub with it, but if my wife or mom catches me on that, I'm a dead man, yeah? Or woman, yes. So, however, a company recently developed a plunger that has solved this dilemma. I have not been paid by them. In case you're wondering, it just worked well for the analogy. They coated the rubber head of the plunger with something akin to Teflon. Everyone understands what that is. It's a non-stick coating. And so what that does is it, it makes it so that when the plunger is down in all that gross stuff, none of that can stick to it. And so you can send the plunger down in there, down into all that gross, nasty stuff. You can plunge the toilet, and then you can pull out that plunger. It will not have any of the filthy stuff on it. The coating is also antimicrobial, uh, and that means it kills germs, so no germs can stick to it or survive on it. Pretty cool. Now, some of you are quick. You're quick-witted, and you would say at this point, Pastor Vince, I'm tracking with you, and I think I understand what you're saying, and I'm not really comfortable with it. Are you asking us to be a Teflon-coated plunger for Jesus? The answer is yes. That's exactly what I'm asking you to be. We, we, cannot, we cannot be too holy to get into the mess of people's lives, to get into... Go into that dark. We have to have confidence in the, in the power of God in us to be able to withstand that. And our Teflon coating is God's word, man. It's the truth. Those lies and that muck and that dirtiness and that filth that would cause us to want to buy a farm and go live all by ourselves. It can't stick to you when you're so full of God's truth. There, there's no room left. There's no area for you to be deceived. That's why it's so important. 
It makes it impossible for the lies of this world and our enemy to stick to us. And so how do we know? How do we know if we're Teflon-coated or not? How can we tell if we are not only in this world, but maybe we've begun to also be a part of this world? So we've made a good case for the fact that we should not run from the world, we should not run from the culture, but we should run to it, but be equipped with God's spirit, be equipped with God's word, and know that we have something to bring into that situation. That a dark, bland world needs salt and light, and that is the call of every person who knows this beautiful gospel. There's no escaping that responsibility, and it's a joyous burden, a light burden, much lighter than carrying the hopelessness of sin. Amen? Amen. You believe that? I do. How do we know? Verse 16 lists for us the driving motivations and characteristics of not just the world or the culture of our day, but throughout history. And we, we actually can see these three elements in the temptation of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so we'll look at these in subsequent order. Let's read verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So first, we have in order the lust of the flesh. And so when it's possible, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that John, in writing this, had the temptation of Adam and Eve in mind because they parallel so closely. We see that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, right? So this first thing we see is the lust of the flesh. Instead of believing God's instruction that it was not good for food and she should not touch it, she let the hunger of her flesh dictate to her what is right. So what I'm saying is you go back to Genesis 3, you'll see three things listed. What it is that kind of pulled Eve into. Aside from the deception of the serpent, we see that she noticed certain things about it. And it appealed to each of these. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And so, first of all, she let the hunger of her flesh dictate to her what was right. More so than the instruction of her loving father who is God. Though there are many, one way that the lust of the flesh manifests itself most vibrantly is through addictions. We are created to worship and serve a master. His name is Jesus. Only one. Only one worthy. Okay? We are prone to be deceived into picking other masters. Because the lust of the flesh and the lies of this world convince us they will be better. The lie always is that this master will be better than Jesus. This master will treat you better uh, they'll be nicer. Things like food, sex, illegal drugs, and, and even legal drugs like caffeine and alcohol. Ooh, I didn't touch the holy cow, did I? Not caffeine. Addiction is an issue at every level. However innocent the substance or master may be, it's still an issue of worship. It's still an issue of mastery. Yeah, there's a lot of shifting in the seats going on. This is fun for me, too. Things like entertainment also. What they do is they'll wave you in with a smile on their face. Come on in. It's going to be great in here. You like that, didn't you? A little twang to it. They'll wave you in with a smile on their face, and they're going to promise to make you feel better or give you something that Jesus won't. And then when you walk through the door of their temple to begin to worship them, the trap is sprung, and you become their slave. Those of you that have struggled with addiction of any kind or sort, you know that this is the way it goes. There's a promise of something, whether it's relief or 
relief from pain, physical or emotional, or just a good time, something that it seems like Jesus won't give you. Come on, I'll give you that. Come, put your allegiance here. Come throw your lot in with me. You find that very quickly that master puts shackles on you, doesn't deliver on the promise, begins to use you and abuse you. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus is clear about this. And King Jesus is the only one worthy of our allegiance. Period. Nobody else. Nobody else is worthy of worship. We are beings created to worship. You're going to find something to worship. There's only one God who's worthy. Everything else is an idol. Number two. In the sequence here, we have the lust of the flesh and then we have the lust of the eyes. Genesis 3 says that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. Uh, Our eyes can get us into major trouble. They can lie to us and lead us astray. Amen? Are you aware of this? You understand that that's possible. Now, fellas, I don't think that this comes up the same way for us normally as it did for Eve. Okay? Unless you're a weirdo, uh, you're probably not rubbernecking and almost getting in a wreck uh, as you drive by an apple tree. Okay? The lust of the eyes is not normally manifesting itself through an issue with fruit. Uh, However, I'm saying it's it's possible but not probable. Um, You know, if you've been asked to leave a produce section because you've been creeping on a bag of oranges, speak to your community group leader this week and uh, they will pray for you and we'll go from there, okay? I love you and we're here to help everybody, even you creepy produce guy. Here's the reality, though. For guys, it's, it's not normally fruit that's our issue. Um, no, man, it, it's not fruit that normally draws your eye away from Jesus. Uh, normally, the easiest way to get your eye off Jesus is, is to put a woman in front of you. And I would say this is potentially why Satan tempted Eve first. Um, because the Bible says at this point in the story, her and Adam were uh, naked and without shame. And so if Adam was anything like most of us, right, let's be honest, when his naked wife said, here, try this fruit, what did he say? Yes, ma'am, is there anything else you'd like me to try? Can I do anything for you? I'll chew on that bark right there. You know, it, it, it really didn't matter, right, because we have naked Eve asking naked Adam to do something, and naked Adam's going to probably comply. <laughs> uh, Satan's not an idiot, right? He knows how God made us and how we work, um, That's not what Adam should have done, however. This is not an excuse for him. Adam, uh, we we like to get on Eve because she was first. Adam was charged with being the leader, gatekeeper, protector, and shepherd. Let's not get that twisted or misunderstand. His ability to be seduced or whatever happened is, is, is not an excuse, nor does it give an excuse to us. He should not have, because of his eyes, just done whatever seemed right to him at that moment. He should have stood for God's word. He should have told his wife no. Really, the very moment they're taking a walk through the garden, because the Bible's clear, Adam was right there, and a snake starts talking, there should have been a stick smashing that thing's head or a rock or something. I don't even know. What are you talking about? Right? Where was Adam as protector? That's our first job, man. So he should have cut it off right there. Eve should have been having a conversation with a snake. Okay? Flat out. Um, it's incredibly hard but not impossible to guard yourself from the lust of the eyes today. Um, 
And women, you're not off the hook here, okay? I rode the guys, so let's, let's talk about you for a second. I think for most of you, uh, Pinterest is a more likely culprit than a guy to draw your eye into lust and envy. And what do I mean by that? How can anything on Pinterest be bad? Well, here's the problem. For some of you, 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 you can look at that. First of all, time is an issue. Secondly, for some of you, it can be like, you know, dear Lord, what, what this woman does with mason jars and pallets, I just want to be her. You know, you see this level of craftiness that you feel like you can never attain to. Or maybe you're that girl, and, and so you're, you're at the upper echelon of Pinterest, you know, skill, and so now you're in competition with all the other upper echelon Pinterest girls um, with your craftiness. Either way, to, to have that, that sense of envy, to look and wish you could be more like. Uh, really, the Bible calls it being covetous, and um, it's a sin. It's not right. Uh, what I think also sometimes what ladies can fall into is, is being covetous of other women's looks and their shape. Uh, comp- constantly comparing yourself to other women is harmful and it's unhealthy. There's nothing wrong with wanting to lose some weight or buy some clothes, but when it's all about trying to reach some unrealistic or idealized or comparative appearance, then it quickly becomes sinful. Girls were having fun when I was riding the guys, weren't you? But here, I want to, I, I, honestly, I want to say something to you because I love you. Dear sisters and dear mothers, please hear me in this. You're beautiful right now. You're beautiful right now. How can I be so sure? How can I say something so broad? Because you are made in the image of our perfect and beautiful creator. If I had no other evidence to present you, I could give you that. Dear ones, you're beautiful right now. And I need you to hear that. I need you to believe that. Because the lie that you're not runs counter to what it is God would say of you. He made you. Did he mess up? Because that's what we say. When we let insecurities and issues and body image issues, I'm not trying to get on you. I love you. I'm trying to help you think right about this. God made you. Did he mess up? Because he didn't make you like that other girl in that picture or that other girl you know. No, he didn't. You're you. And that was on purpose. Amen? Let me hear the men say amen to that. Amen. amen. You single guys be quiet on that one. I'm just kidding. Uh, maybe you have goals you want to reach, and that's great, and I mean that, but don't let that become what defines your worth. You're a daughter of the King of Kings, and that alone makes you precious. So precious, in fact, that that same king laid down his life so he could have you. What does that say about you? If you're struggling in a given day to find worth in who you are or all of some of the issues that you struggle with, just, just come back to the fact that King Jesus laid down his life to have you. Let that be your primary source of identity and all else flow from it. It'll short circuit all of those lies that tend to try to fill your brain and get you to think different about you than God himself does. Let me ask you something, ladies. If God thinks something about you and you think something about you and those are different, who's right? Who's right? God's your Father that loves you because He knows you better. You're beautiful. And I don't care what the devil's told some of you young women. If you have a godly desire to marry, then He will send you a man that will be willing to lay down his life in like fashion to be your husband. You hear me? 
Quit letting the devil have your head about that. If you have a godly desire to marry, then he's going to send you a man that will lay his life down just like Jesus did for you. Because that's his call. And if he's not willing to do that, that's not the guy you're looking for. You better have a Bible in his hand, a plan, and love you enough to lay down his life to have you. Those are the requirements. for. Don't even bring him to talk to me until you got that part figured out. You can weed him before that. Then he can come talk to me. If he passes that test, he's probably a keeper. You, you, want, you want to talk to potential husbands? I think you should want me to. Unless you've got a good dad in place to do the job, amen, that's his job. But I know some of you don't. And if you don't, I'm happy to have that conversation. I'll be nice to him, I promise. People who know me shook their head. I will. I'm telling you right now, I'm held to it. It's on the audio. I'll be nice to him. But I will ask him real questions. Okay? But if having that man has become your idol, that may be the very thing holding your desire back from being fulfilled. Your Heavenly Father loves you too much to give you your idol. Okay? He loves you too much to do that. If marriage is your idol, God's not going to give you that because it's going to lead to your destruction. He loves you more than that. And so some of you are frustrated that God won't give you your idol. That's because he loves you. So you've got to sort through that. You've got to repent that your allegiance has been giving to this idea you have of marriage. What you want to do, this is for men or women, if you desire to marry and you're frustrated about it, here's what you, I promise to God this is the truth. If you will chase Jesus with all of your heart, what will happen in the midst of that process is you're going to bump into somebody that's doing the same thing. That's how you find the person you want to be with. It's not at the bar, and it's not out here on the streets doing whatever, putting yourself out there. If you're pursuing Christ with all your heart, if he's here and you're chasing after Jesus, if you're a guy, at some point you're going to bump into a girl, she's doing the same thing. That's the one you want. Girls, same deal. You want to look for someone that loves Jesus as much as you or more. Because you need somebody that's going to push you for the rest of your life when it's hard. You need somebody that's as committed to Christ as you are. Girls, quit settling for him because, you know, he said he'd come to church. See, the the lust of the eyes might have got you there because he looks like an opportunity. He might marry me. I love you. You're worth more than that. Okay? King Jesus says so if you don't believe me. I understand. I'm not a totally credible witness. But that's why you got to know this word. Okay? And I love you. Everything I've said is because I love you. I want you to know that. Um, now, for those of you ladies who are married, I like oatmeal cherry chocolate chip cookies. And you might be thinking, that's really weird. Why did he say that? Because um, I'm about to hammer your husband, and cookies are always a nice way to say thank you. Okay? So I'm about to hammer him for you so you don't have to. And I just gave you the kind of cookies I like. Uh, here's the deal, husbands. If you're married, you are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Okay, that is what Ephesians 5 calls us to. That's the standard he sets. Uh, Jesus showed us how much he loved us and desired us by dying on the cross. Okay? Thankfully, that only needed to be done once by him. But you need to let your wife know how much you love and desire her. In whatever way she feels loved and appreciated the most, you've got to do that as much as you possibly can. 
You're not going to match Jesus as far as letting her know how much she's loved and desired, but you need to shoot for that. And you need to get as creative and cutesy with it as you did when you were pursuing her. You remember that? When you cared and you tucked your shirt in, right? Popped the men in before you got real close to her face, that kind of stuff. That was cool. Do that more. Um, but honestly, you, you want to chip the ice off of your marriage, men? Chase her like you did when you were dating her. Marrying her was not catching her, so now you don't have to try anymore. That was just her agreeing to let you keep chasing her forever. Anybody ever watch National Geographic when, when lions, they're like, they're like chasing after a zebra or something? And sometimes it goes bad for the zebra. Sometimes the zebra gets caught. Sometimes the zebra pulls off this ninja move that, that looks like Bruce Lee trained it, right? It'll throw this back kick and just catch the lion right in the chops. Married men, she could have done that to you. But she let you catch her. So let her back up and run and catch her some more. That's what she's looking for. She wants you to pursue her with that same kind of passion you did before you caught her. And guys, I know you've got a hunting nature and you feel like you caught her, the job's done. Now I can coast. No. Not if you want a marriage that honors Jesus. Not if you want a happy one. Why am I talking about this? Because a lot of what I'm addressing right now crushes the ability of the enemy to get your eye to wander. A lot of the things in place that I'm talking about right now will give a defense against that gateway that is the eye that oftentimes leads us into trouble. Men, tell her that she's beautiful all the time, even if every time you do, she says, no, I'm not. Okay? I know some of you... That's frustrating, and now I want to say to you wives, stop saying, no, I'm not. When he tells you that, you got to stop saying that because it really makes it hard on the husbands because what you're thinking, I think. It's dangerous whenever I wade into thinking I know what women think. However, I'm this, I'm, I'm going I'm to go out on a limb, okay? Oftentimes, I think when you're saying, when you're thinking, he says I'm beautiful, I'll say, no, I'm not, then he'll have to get specific, Right? You're thinking, if I say, no, I'm not, well, that'll lead him to say, but what are you talking about, honey? But your hair is so beautiful. It's so shiny today, and your eyes, they're amazing. When the sun hits them, they sparkle. I mean, just, just like a sapphire. And I'm, I'm going to stop there before I get in trouble, because um, my wife's not in here. So, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. You think, I'll, I'll, I'll say, no, I'm not, and that'll, that'll, that'll get him to be specific. No, it won't. <laughs> No, he's going he's gonna to freeze up like a rusty bike chain, okay, as soon as you do that to him. And, and here's why. I'm going to tell you why this is true. Because in his mind, he's already thought it through, right? He's thought, okay, I'm going to tell her she's beautiful, and, and, he, and he plays it out in his mind. He's seen too many movies. I'm going to tell her she's beautiful, and, and she's going she's gonna to get this smile on her face, and she's going to be really happy that I said that, and then she's probably going to give me a big hug and, and a kiss, and we might even twirl around a little bit. Like, in his mind, he's already played this thing out. And so he drops the bomb. He's like, sweetie, you look beautiful today. And you go, no, I don't. And he's like, uh, I did not plan for this. I don't know what to do next. So he hits the eject button, right? And that's as far as the conversation goes. And then you're sitting there mad, like, why didn't he go into specifics? You, you, you did not help. 
you threw him into panic mode. He wasn't ready for that. He wants you to say thank you or, or smile at him or anything other than disagree because uh, he doesn't know what to do with that. Um, if you want him to be specific about why he thinks you're beautiful, can I please give you a suggestion? If he says that you're beautiful, it's okay to then say, why, why do you think I'm beautiful? Ladies, if you're looking that day, if you feel like some verbal affirmation would be pleasant and enjoyable, tell the man, okay? Just say, why do you think I'm beautiful? And I know exactly, I, I'm sure on this one, you're thinking, you know, well, he should know. He should know why I said that. He doesn't, okay? I'm just, I'm the man on this, and I'm sure about this. He doesn't. All of your subtle cues, the body language, all the stuff that you think you've painted a big sign, white with red letters, that says, tell me more about this me being beautiful. He doesn't get it, okay? You got you to spell it out for him. Ladies, we're not dumb. I promise, we're not dumb. We're just not mind readers, okay? If you got a guy that can meet a ride, meet a ride, read a mind, see, I'm getting nervous just talking about this. It's, it's really scary stuff. If you've got a guy that can read a mind, uh, <clears throat> that's demonic, so get away from him, okay? Um, you, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say what you mean and mean what you say. Guys, we're, we're just more straight to the point, okay? Uh, if he tells you you're beautiful, say thank you. If you want to hear more, say, why do, you, why do you think I'm beautiful? Go ahead and tell me. And he may even sweat and squirm a little bit on that, but at least he knows where you want him to go. Just lead him slowly, okay? It's good. It's good. Amen. Um, the truth is there are countless temptations before us every day trying to draw our eyes out of the Scriptures and off of our mission. Is that true or not? I mean, they're everywhere. These temptations that are assaulting our eyes, trying to draw our gaze away from Jesus. And part of the battle plan here is just knowing how prone you are to be led astray through your eyes. We have to understand that. Job understood this, and he, he, he said that he made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon a woman lustfully. He understood he was going to have to be intentional about what he looked at, what he gave time to with his eyes. We must be vigilant about what enters in through the eye gate and not foolishly believe that looking but not touching makes it okay. Normally, if you have no conviction about looking, it will not be long before you're touching. And looking with envy is always sinful. And like all sin, it leads to pain and destruction. We as Christians must be vigilant about what we let hit our eyes. Entertainment, stuff that we watch, stuff that we let our kids watch, we need to think about that. I'm not going to give you a rating, I'm just saying... Pay attention because what comes in through the eyes affects everything. It matters. There is a lust of the eyes and we can either feed that or we can push back against it. Stick your eyes on the Bible more. You'll be less chance for uh, other things to get in there. Amen? The third element of the temptation that we see, the third element we have listed here is the boastful pride of life. Eve believed the lie of the enemy that the tree was desirable to make one wise. See, what God had told her was that you will surely die if you eat of this tree. Satan came along and directly disagreed with that and said, you will not surely die. See, that's our first cue. As Christians, automatically, when somebody comes and says something that runs conflict or opposite of what it is that God has already said, 
We instantly know to push back against that. But Eve believed the lie that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And Eve pridefully and foolishly believed that serpent over God. Satan told her, you're not going to die. Instead, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. This was the promise. The lie. And the same old, uh, dumb, ignorant line that we tend to buy over and over again. The, the sins can be different. The lies can be different. But overall, the ignorant line that we are accepting is that God's laws aren't good for you because he loves you. But that he, what he wants to do is keep good things from you. And these other idols, these other gods, they come and they, they propose to offer you things that God withholds from you. Secret joys that God, because he's mean and sadistic, just doesn't want you to have. We, we may never actually formulate that sentence, but oftentimes with our actions, we, we act like that's what we believe. That what God has said not to do, or what God has said to do, that that's not for our good. But that we know better. This was Eve's mistake. This is the boastful pride of life. All sin, every sin, trace it down to its root. Pride is there. It's unavoidable. There are some that believe that part of the temptation here was not just knowing good and evil. So Satan told her, look, you're not going to die. But what's going to happen is now you're going to know good and evil like God does. You'll be like God. Uh, and some believe that the temptation was not just knowing good and evil, but there's a connotation there of being able to determine for yourself what is good and evil. Not just becoming aware or cognitive of the difference, but of you being able to exert influence into that. And I think that the trajectory of human behavior since the fall would lend credence to this idea. This world is so blinded by pride in this day that humanity is on a steady march towards complete abandonment of God's word as an objective source of truth about what is right and wrong and good and evil. Christianity and the Bible are under aggressive attack by those who hate God. And what they want you to believe is that God is either not real or that he doesn't have the right to determine what is right and wrong or to tell us what to do. Actually, when you take it all the way out, what they want you to believe is that no one does. No one has this right. That each person should have the right to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. What this means, of course, is that there, that there is no right and there is no wrong. If each one of us is given the opportunity to subjectively decide, each of us for ourselves, what is right and what is wrong, and nobody can encroach upon them, then what do we have? We have no objective moral standard. There is then no right and wrong because I can't come and tell you what you've decided is wrong. I can't speak to it. I have no power higher than myself to appeal to. If each person has that level of autonomy and that is what our, the postmodern mindset, Western culture is marching towards every day. I'm not sure to what degree you understand even what I'm talking about right now, but I want you to think about it and pray about it. This is the major attack trying to cut under the foundation of the scriptures we say we believe. Ultimately, the attack is God's word is not true. As a matter of fact, nothing is true. You go decide what is true. Then nobody has the authority to tell you what you're doing is wrong. Here's the problem with that, and here's where it ends up. What it means if everyone has that option is that there is no longer any right or wrong at all. And so rape and murder and genocide and all of the most unspeakable evils that man is capable of, these are permissible if the individual person believes it to be. You can't tell me that that's wrong. 
I get to decide. Well, we don't like it when we take it all the way there, do we? This devastating implication of the flawed worldview seems to escape them as they fight for this self-destructive autonomy. Those that are fighting to tell you no, no God, no authority, no Bible should be able to dictate to you what's right or what's wrong. That you should be able to wake up each day and decide that for yourself. Really? Really? Because there's Jeffrey Dahmers in the world. Should he get that right? Hey, killing people, chop them up, drill holes in their head, you can't tell me that's wrong. The rapist, the pedophile, hey, it's my, it's my own personal deal, man. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. No, that's ridiculous. It cuts across grain to everything that is even reasonable or logical. The appeal of it is that it appeals to that same temptation that was able to lead Adam and Eve astray. Right? Because ultimately, what they saw there, that boastful pride of life, was you can be like God. You can know good and evil. You can be up on his level. Instead of being happy with being children of the king of kings. They wanted to get up there where he was, have influence on what's right and wrong, let their opinion be heard. To heck with my opinion. I want to know what God's opinion is on it. Settle with that. I'll be better for it. The boastful pride of life shows up in other ways as well. Uh, It shows up in the desire for material possessions. Here's the thing. If you have four kids... There's nothing wrong with having a house big enough to fit everybody. Nothing at all. But if the reason that you want that big house is so that everyone knows how successful and therefore completely awesome you are, there's a pride issue. It comes down to motive. It comes down to what's, what's causing this desire. And you see, we tend to make it about the big house, right? And so people will make dumb statements like, well, nobody needs a house that big. Right, you got a single, a single guy that you know, hasn't even thought about marrying a girl or having kids, and he wants to talk about the guy with four kids and how big his house. Nobody needs a house that big. Everyone should live in a trash can like Oscar the Grouch. Well, okay. Try doing that with four kids, genius. You're, you're not going to be a good dad. You're not going to be a good husband doing that. You're supposed to provide for the needs of your household. But we like to make it about uh, the big house. And, but here's the thing. Uh, you know, what if they have a big family? What if God has gifted them with hospitality? There is a gift of hospitality. What if God has gifted them with that? And they have a lot of people over really often to minister to them and that they help build the kingdom. They've got that house, but they put people in it and it's intentional and gospel ministry flows out of that house. Who, I mean, seriously, who, who are we to say? We like to make it, here's the deal, here's why we do that. We like to make it about the house or the car, because if we can ridicule the material possession, instead of thinking about pride as the real root problem, we can just keep throwing stones at the big house or nice car guy, so we don't have to look inward and deal with our own pride. Right? Because you could, you could sit there and say, hey man, I've got a little house, and I have a cheap little beater car, or no car at all. So clearly, clearly, I don't struggle with pride. Yes, you do, you goober. I love you. But yes, you're prideful about your jankity car and your little dumpy house. You're prideful about it. You think you're better than the person that has a big house and you don't know why they do. 
do, peop, do, do many, many people in America have big houses that don't need them? It's because it strokes their ego. Yes, but can we just always assume that? Are you the new Holy Spirit that can do, go down into the deep part of people's hearts and, and explore and know their motives? No. If you're going to go pride hunting, spend time in your own forest, okay? The forest of your heart where pride likes to hide, okay? Verse 17 gives us an incredibly strong reason for why all of this matters. Okay, I'm going to read that to you. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Guys, here's the reality. The big and the little houses, the nice and the jankety cars, the fashion trends and the Pinterest crafts and the buffets and the drugs, they're all going to burn up and they're going to be gone. It's all going to go. All of us will stand one day before the supreme and sovereign ruler over all, who is our God and Father, and we won't be able to bring any of our little pride idols with us to show him what we were doing on his planet for however many years he gave us. We're not going to get to bring that stuff along as evidence for why he should have invested air in us. The only evidence that, that we weren't totally useless while we were here will be what we invested in those things that are eternal. And he's warned us. He's warned us not to store up treasures uh, here. He's told us, don't get attached Children, because you're just passing through there. You're just an alien, a sojourner there. And I mean this earth, this world. That's why we can't fall in love with this world. This isn't our home. He sends us here to do a mission for 70, 80, maybe 90 years. Some of you might hit 100. I don't think I want to. <laughs> but the reality is, stack that next to eternity. It's a blip on the timeline. This is not even what's real. <laughs> this is a little journey we go on before we hit what's real. We need to think like that. The only thing that we're going to have is the time we invested in people and the talent and treasure we invested in building God's kingdom. These are the only things that are going to be perceivable when our real life begins, and that's in eternity. And we know that what's being said here, it says that... Um, it says that the one who does the will of God lives forever. We know that that is, what that's not saying is that the works of doing God's will, that that is what will cause us to live forever with him. But that the reality is only those who have been saved by grace through faith will have the ability to do his will. We know because of all of the totality of the rest of the verses that it can't be that, well, if I did God's will, then I'll be saved. It's clear that that is not what decides the eternal fate of humans but that it is faith, it is trust in the finished work of Christ. However, it is only those who have trusted in Christ and only those who have been filled with God's Spirit that will have the anointing and the power necessary to do any part of God's will on this planet. Because I'm not going to lie to you, though the burden is light, it, it can be an uphill battle. It can be an upstream swim when all of the tide of the rest of culture is flowing the other way. But it is our call, and it is a joyous one. Only those that have believed the beautiful gospel will be able to avoid stumbling around in the darkness as if blind. It is only through the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can avoid a meaningless existence. 
chasing temporary things. It is only because of the beautiful gospel that we have hope. That we have hope for those things. And I I need to just take a moment to explain what I mean by that. I can't assume that everybody in the room knows what I mean when I say gospel. Very clearly and plainly, gospel means good news. The good news of the gospel makes little sense if we do not first understand the bad news. We've mentioned it a little bit here today in discussing the temptation of our first parents. The reality is that God created everything perfect. He himself is perfect. Earlier in 1 John, he is compared to light. Light is so pure in its essence, it cannot in any way ever be mixed with anything else. God is pure like that. He is ho- the Bible uses the word holy to describe him. He is set apart in such a way that he cannot in his perfection and holiness and goodness be mixed with darkness and sin. And so when we in our rebellion chose to separate ourselves from him by sin, that created a, an, a chasm that could not be bridged by anything that we could do. We could not fix the problem. When Adam and Eve sinned, mankind from that point on, we are sinners by nature and choice. God is perfect, we are not. What is required to be in relationship with a perfect God is perfection. This is the totality of the bad news. It's really bad news because I realize I'm not perfect. Would you join me in that realization? I am not perfect. Not even close And so if perfection is what is required to be in relationship with God who is perfect, where does that leave me? Leaves me in a whole lot of trouble. This is why the good news is so sweet. This is why the good news is the banner that we hold high. It is the crown jewel of our faith. It is the thing that we center everything else around. The good news is that Jesus came, built a bridge, fixed the problem, did what we couldn't do, did the work that was impossible for us to do, lived a perfect life by the power of God, and then laid down his life in our place for our sins, lived the life that we couldn't, and then died the death that we should have. Somehow God sees fit to call justice Jesus living a perfect life and then being a sacrifice for our sins, him, spreading, him shedding his blood in our place for our sins. I don't see how that works. I don't see how I get to be evil, I get to be rebellious, I get to fail in sin. Jesus doesn't, but God lets him step in and take my punishment and then counts me righteous if I'll trust and believe that. How does that work out to justice? I don't see that calculus. It doesn't work anywhere else in the earth. And yet this is what God has given to us as the gospel. This is his gift to humanity. Believe this and you can be reconciled to me. I'll count Jesus' perfection as yours. I'll trade you all your wretchedness and your insecurities and your sin and your failure and your dirtiness. And I'll give you Jesus' purity and righteousness as a trade. Nobody else is making that trade. I don't understand why this is hard, why people think Christianity is is this totalitarian regime that's going to steal all your fun. No, it is is freedom of of the only kind that can be found for real in all the earth. Other than that, you are enslaved to those idols, the false promises that they sold you. The only way out of that is to serve the one whose promises are actually held true. That's King Jesus. All day, every day, and for eternity, His word will not return to him void. He'll never be found to be dishonest. He's not a man that he should lie. And so his gospel will hold true. He came, lived perfect, died in our place for our sins, and then proving everything he said was true, 
conquered death because the stone rolled away and he rose from the grave. This is the gospel that we believe. And I'm telling you today, some of you have believed falsely. You've, you've, you've taken maybe a reading of 1 John and you've, you've seen it say, he who does the will of God will live forever. And so you've thought, man, I've done a lot of not the will of God. And so maybe I'm excluded from the ability to be able to be reconciled to God in this life and for eternity. Please let me tell you today, the only reason we know anything about God is because of this word. And this word right here, God's holy word, makes clear your reconciliation, your eternity is not based on what you do or don't do. If that was the deal, all of us would be stuck in the bad news boat and we'd go to hell. The good news is, it's not about you, how bad you've been or how good you've been. It's how good Jesus has been. Will you trust? Will you believe? That Jesus' sacrifice is enough to pay the price to not only cover your sins, but to take away your shame. Will you believe that? That's what we invite you to today. We invite you to put trust and faith in Christ. That's what it means to be saved. And yes, in that transaction, you are pledging your allegiance, not to the flag, but to King Jesus. But to somebody that's offering what he's offering, I don't see why you'd want to give your allegiance to anyone else. Drugs never gave me what they promised. It didn't. None of the other junk. Entertainment never gives me what it promises. All those idols. Come on. Come on, come be with us. We'll do better than Jesus can. It always fell short. If you're tired of that today, I invite you to throw your lot in with us. Serve a king who will not let you down. The one who's faithful always and forever. The gospel is the only hope for every woman and every man. And without it, they will not live forever with God. They will live forever without him. And that is the worst thing imaginable. See, to me, the worst thing about hell is not fire or the descriptions of flame and torture. The worst thing is to think about an eternity separated from a God who loves me as much as the God of this Bible does. I want to be with him. That's the deal. There's a lot of cool things about heaven. There's a movie out now that has some descriptions about what heaven's like, and that's great. I don't have any problem with that. But here's the ultimate and biggest deal for me. I don't care if the streets are paved with gold. I don't care if there's rivers flowing all over the place, if there's rainbows everywhere you look. That's great. I'm excited to see all that. But here's the thing that I know, and here's what motivates me every day when I wake up. Here's the prize that I'm looking for at the end of my race. He's there. My king is there. The one I serve and has served me, he went first. The one that loves me so much, he went to the cross in my place for my sins. He's there. That's what I'm running for. Can't wait. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We really mean that. And we know we couldn't love you if you didn't love us first. If you didn't show us what love was at the cross. And so, Lord, uh, we celebrate that today. I'm really thankful for it. And, uh, Lord, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us to see where our hands and feet have been ensnared in the lust of the flesh and in the lust of the eyes and in the boastful pride of life because 
Lord, if we're honest, these, these temptations, they come at us from every angle every day. It is, it is difficult to be in this world, but not of this world. But Lord God, we know that your scriptures tell us you always make a way of escape from temptation and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit, part of the deal in you coming to save us is giving us your Holy Spirit. And with that power, not only to resist temptation, but to go into this world and be light and salt to affect change, to swim upstream, to do opposite of what the culture around us is doing, to stand with strength and conviction and to share the good news with all that we have the opportunity. Lord, I ask you to increase those opportunities. I ask that every single person at Love City would have an anointing beyond even, Lord, what, they're, uh, what they've experienced or what they're expecting. I ask, God, that you would anoint them for the task of being ambassadors of your gospel. I ask, Lord, that as they, when they wake up in the morning, Lord, like, like smelling that breakfast being made, God, that they would run for your word, that they would anticipate what it is you would speak to them through the word, and that there would be excitement in it, that it would not be a duty, but it would be a delight. And God, may we run to you, may we, may we look forward to those moments of silence where we can get alone with just you, that prayer would not be a chore to check off of our list, but God, that we would covet and we would, and we would just... We would passionately pursue those moments when we can just get with you and, and speak to you and be spoken to by you. Or may we long for this time. And God, as an outflowing and outworking of all of that, may we be better equipped. Witnesses in this earth. Soldiers for your cause. Builders of your kingdom. Lord, oftentimes I feel, I feel totally unworthy that you would have chosen us given us the mantle of responsibility for spreading this gospel. Sometimes it seems it would have been better if you did it a different way, but Lord God, I will not question you. You are much smarter, higher, and greater than I, and so God, I will just obey you. Lord, please make up for our frailties. Please anoint us. We want to please you, and we want to serve you. We really love you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.